Hello and welcome back to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes and this is episode 12 of The Fall of Constantinople and the title of this episode is The Silence Before the Storm. In the last episode we heard about how the brave defenders of Constantinople, who numbered not more than 7,000 soldiers, had held out for seven weeks against an Ottoman Turkish army of over 100,000 equipped with the latest military technology in the world, that is cannons. The Turks had even forged one of the largest cannons ever made, designed by the Hungarian ironworker and engineer Orban, who had at first offered his services to the Byzantines, but when they couldn't pay him enough, had gone to the Turkish Sultan instead. But even the Turkish cannons couldn't completely break the walls of Constantinople, built nearly a thousand years before by the Roman Emperor Theodosius in the 5th century to protect Constantinople from Attila the Hun. So, the Turkish Sultan Mehmet II, or Mehmet the Conqueror as he would later be called, dragged his ships overland into the Golden Horn, the wide estuary shaped like a horn to the north of Constantinople. But even that didn't bring a breakthrough for the Turks. And in late May 1453, just as the defenders of the city, led by the Byzantine Emperor Constantine XI Palaeologus, were wondering how much longer they could last, Mehmet actually wondered whether it would be best to abandon the siege. So he called a council of his advisers, which is where we join this episode. As before, I'll read from my adapted version of Sir Stephen Runciman's wonderful book on the fall of Constantinople. Hope you enjoy it. By late May 1453, the siege had lasted for seven weeks, and yet the huge Turkish army, with its magnificent war engines, had achieved very little. Morale amongst the Sultan's own troops was beginning to sink. His sailors had suffered humiliating defeats. His soldiers had won, as yet, no victories. The longer that the city eluded him, the more his own prestige declined. At his court, the old vizier Halil and his friends still disapproved of the whole venture. Mehmet had gone against their advice in undertaking it. Was it possible that they were right. It was perhaps partly to show them that he was not unreasonable, and partly to satisfy his own conscience as a good Muslim, who should avoid fighting unless the infidel obstinately refused to surrender, that he made one last overture for peace, though it would be peace on his terms. There was in his camp a young nobleman called Ismahil, the son of a renegade Greek, whom he had made a vassal prince of This was the envoy whom he now sent to the city. Ismahil had friends amongst the Byzantines, and he did his best to persuade them that it was not too late to save themselves. On his urging, they appointed an ambassador to go back to the Turkish camp with him. The man's name has not been recorded. We only know that he was of no high rank or family. The Sultan's treatment of ambassadors was notoriously uncertain, and it was doubtless felt that none of the notables 
souls could be spared on so risky a mission. He was, however, received not ungraciously by Mehmet, who sent him back with the message that the siege would be raised if the emperor would undertake to pay an annual tribute of a 100,000 gold Byzants, or, if it were preferred, the citizens could abandon the city walls with all their movable possessions and none of them would be harmed. When the offer came before the emperor's council, one or two members believed that it might be possible to gain time by promising to pay the tribute. But the majority knew that so great a tribute could never be raised and that if it were not immediately forthcoming, the sultan would merely continue with the siege and none of them now was willing to allow him to take over Constantinople without further effort. It may be that as Turkish sources report, the Byzantine emperor answered by offering to surrender everything that he owned except for the city, which was in fact his only remaining possession. To this, the sultan retorted that the only choice left to the Byzantines lay between the surrender of the city, death by the sword, or conversion to Islam. These hollow negotiations probably took place on Friday the 25th of May. On the Saturday, Mehmet summoned his inner council, the vizier Halil Pasha, relying on his record of long and distinguished public service, rose to his feet and demanded that the siege be abandoned. He had never approved of the campaign and events had shown him to be right. The Turks had made no headway. Instead, they had suffered some humiliating setbacks. At any time, the princes of the West would come to the city's rescue, he said. Venice had already dispatched a great fleet. Genoa, however, unwillingly, would be forced to do likewise. Let the Sultan offer terms that would be acceptable to the Byzantine Emperor and retire before worse disasters occurred. The venerable vizier commanded respect. Many of his hearers, remembering how ineffectual the Turkish warships had shown themselves in their battles against the Christians, must have shuddered at the thought of great Italian navies bearing down on them. The Sultan, after all, was only a boy of 21. Was he imperiling his great heritage with this impetuous recklessness of youth? The next to speak was Zaganos Pasha. He disliked Halil, and he knew that the Sultan shared his dislike. Seeing his master's look of angry despair at the effects of Halil's speech, he declared that he had no faith in the Grand Vizier's fears. The European powers were too bitterly divided amongst themselves ever to undertake joint action against the Turks, and even if a Venetian fleet was approaching, which he disbelieved, its ships and men would be far outnumbered by the Turks. He spoke of the omens that fought told the doom of the Byzantine Empire. He spoke of Alexander the Great, the youth who, with a far smaller army, had conquered half the world. The attack should be pressed forward with no thought of retreat. Many of the younger generals rose to support Zaganos. The commander of the Bashi Bazooks was particularly vehement in his demand for stronger action. Mehmet's spirits rose. 
This was what he wanted to hear. He told Zagonos to go out amongst the troops and ask them what they wished. Zagonos soon returned with the desired answer. Every man, he said, insisted that there should be an immediate attack. The Sultan then announced that the assault should take place as soon as it could be prepared. From that moment, Halil must have known that his days were numbered. He had always been a kindly friend to the Christians with the tolerance of a pious Muslim of the old school, unlike such upstart renegades as Zagonos and Mahmud. Whether he had actually received presents from the Byzantines is uncertain, but his enemies now insinuated that this was the case, and the Sultan was glad to believe them. News of the Sultan's decision soon reached Constantinople. Christians in his camp shot arrows over the walls with letters describing the meeting of the council wrapped around them. Throughout the Friday and the Saturday, the bombardment of the land walls had been heavier than ever, but the damage done was still quickly repaired. By the Saturday evening, the stockade was as strong as it had ever been. But through the night, the Turks could be seen by the lights of their flares to be bringing up material of all sorts to fill the foss up solidly and moving their guns forward onto the platforms that they built. On the Sunday, the bombardment was concentrated on the stockade across the Mesotikion. Three direct shots by the great cannon brought a portion of it down. Justiniani, who had been supervising the repair work, was slightly wounded by a splinter and retired for a few hours while his wound was dressed. He returned to his post before nightfall. On that same day of the 27th of May, the Sultan rode through his whole army to announce that the great assault would take place very soon. His heralds followed him, pausing here and there to proclaim that, as the custom of Islam ordered, the soldiers of the faith would be allowed three days in which they might freely sack the city. The Sultan had sworn by eternal God and his prophet and by the 4,000 prophets and by the souls of his father and his children that all the treasure found found in the city would be fairly distributed among the troops. The proclamation was received with shouts of joy. From within the city walls, men could hear the Muslim hosts cry out in jubilation, There is no God but God, and Muhammad is his prophet. That night, as on the Saturday night, flares and torches lit up swarms of workmen pouring more and more material into the fosse and piling stocks of arms beyond it. That night they worked in high excitement, shouting and singing, while trumpets, pipes and lutes encouraged them on. So bright were the flames that for one hopeful moment the besieged believed that the Turkish camp had actually caught fire and hurried onto the walls to see the conflagration. When they realised the true cause of the light, they could only kneel down and pray. At midnight, quite suddenly, the work ceased and all the lights went out. The Sultan had commanded that the Monday should be a day of rest and atonement, and that his warriors might be prepared for the final assault on the Tuesday. He himself spent the day inspecting all his troops and giving them their orders. First, he rode with a grand escort over the bridge across the Golden Horn out to the double columns to see his admiral Hamza Bey. Hamza was told that on the morrow his ships must be 
spread out across the boom and round against the whole Marmora shore of the city. The men should be given scaling ladders and should attempt wherever possible, either from the ships themselves or from small boats, to make a landing and scale the walls, or if that proved impossible, at least to feign attacks so constantly that none of the defence would dare to leave the spot. As he rode back to give similar orders to his ships within the Golden Horn, Mehmet stopped outside the chief gate of the Genoese colony of Pera and summoned the magistrates of the town to him. They were sternly commanded to see that none of their citizens gave any help to the Byzantines in Constantinople the following day. If they disobeyed, he would punish them at once. He then returned to his tent to emerge again in the afternoon when he rode down the whole length of the land walls, talking to the officers and haranguing the men as they sat about their encampments. When he had seen that all was to his liking, he summoned his ministers and the army leaders to his tent and spoke to them. His speech is given to us by the historian Critobulus, who, like all educated Byzantines, was a student of Thucydides, and therefore put into the mouths of his heroes the speeches which he thought they would and should have given. But, though the words are the historians, they give us the sense of what the Sultan must have said. He reminded the assembly of the riches that the city still contained and of the booty that would soon be theirs. He reminded them that for centuries it had been the sacred duty of the Islamic faithful to capture the Christian capital and that the traditions promised success. The city was not impregnable, he said. The enemy were few and exhausted and short of arms and provisions and divided between themselves. The Italians would certainly not wish to die for a city that was not their own. Tomorrow, he declared, he would send wave after wave of his men to the attack until, out of weariness and despair, the defenders would yield. He urged his officers to show courage and keep discipline. He then bade them to go to their tents and to rest and to be ready for the signal of the attack when it came. The chief commanders stayed with him to receive his final instructions. The Admiral Hamza already knew his allotted task. Zaganos, after providing men to supplement the sailors, who would attack the walls along the Golden Horn was to bring the rest of his army across the bridge for the assault on Blackenai. Karaja Pasha would be on his right as far as the Carizian Gate. Ishak and Mahmud with the Asiatic troops were to attack the stretch from the civil gate of St. Romanus down to the Marmora, concentrating on the area around the third military gate. He himself, with Halil and Saruja, would direct the main attack, which would be in the Lycus valley. Having made his wishes known, he retired to have supper and to sleep. All day long, there was a strange silence outside the walls. Even the great cannons were silent. There were some in the city who declared that the Turks were preparing to withdraw, but their optimism was only a vain attempt to raise their own spirits. Everyone knew that, in fact, the moment of crisis had arrived. During the last few days, the nervous exhaustion of the defenders had been shown in bickering and mutual accusations between Greeks, Venetians and Genoese. To the Venetians and the Byzantines alike, the neutrality of Pera suggested that no Genoese was to be trusted. The arrogance of the Venetians offended both the Genoese and the Byzantines. The Venetians had been constructing wooden shields and mantles in the workshops of their own quarter and Minotta 
Moscow ordered Byzantine workmen to carry them to the defence lines at Blackenai. The workmen refused to do so unless they were paid, not from reasons of greed, as the Venetians chose to believe, but because they resented such summary orders from an Italian and because they genuinely needed to have more money and spare time if they were to find food for their hungry families. Few Venetians had their families with them, and the Genoese women and children were living in comfort at Pera. The Italians never realised the strain imposed upon the Greeks by the certainty that their wives and children would all be involved in their own fate. Sometimes there were disputes over strategy as soon as it was clear that the great attack was coming. Justiniani demanded from the Byzantine megadux Lucas Notaras that he should move the cannons that he controlled to the Mesotychion, where every gun would be needed. Notaris refused. He believed, not without cause, that the harbour walls also were to be attacked, and they were already inadequately defended. There were angry words, and the Byzantine emperor had wearily to intervene. Justiniani seems to have won his point. Archbishop Leonard, in his hatred of the Orthodox Byzantine Church, declared that the Byzantines were jealous lest the credit for the defence should go to the Latins and that henceforward they were sullen and half-hearted. He chose to forget that there were as many Byzantines as Italians fighting in the Lycus Valley, nor, as he admitted, did any Byzantine show lack of zeal when the battle began. On this Monday, with the knowledge that the crisis was upon them, the soldiers and citizens forgot their quarrels. While the men at the walls worked on to repair the shattered defences, a great procession was formed. In contrast to the silence in the Turkish camp, in the city the bells of the churches rang out and their wooden gongs sounded as icons and relics were brought out upon the shoulders of the faithful and carried around through the streets and along the length of the walls, pausing to bless with their holy presence, the spots where the damage was greatest and the danger most imminent, and the throng that followed behind them, Byzantines and Italians, Orthodox and Catholic Christians, sang hymns and repeated the Kyrie Eleison. The Byzantine emperor himself came to join in the procession, and when it was ended, he summoned his nobles and commanders, Greek and Italian, and spoke to them. His speech was recorded by two men present, his secretary, Francis, and the archbishop of Mytilene. Each of them wrote down the emperor's speech in his own way, but their accounts agree sufficiently for us to know its substance. Constantine told his hearers that the great assault was about to begin. To his Byzantine subjects, he said that a man should always be ready to die, either for his faith or for his country or for his family or for his sovereign. Now his people must be prepared to die for all four causes. He spoke of the glories and the high traditions of the great imperial city of Constantinople. He spoke of the treachery of the infidel sultan who had provoked the war in order to destroy the truth faith and to put his false prophet in the seat of Christ. He urged them to remember that they were the descendants of the heroes of ancient Greece and Rome and to be worthy of their ancestors. For his part, he said, he was ready to die for his faith, his city and his people. He then turned to the Italians, thanking them for the great services that they had rendered and telling of his trust in them for the fighting that was still to come. He begged them all, Greeks and Italians alike, not to fear the vast numbers of the enemy and the barbarous devices of fires and of noise designed to alarm them. Let their spirits be high. Let them be brave and steadfast with the help of God, 
they would be victorious. All that were present rose to assure the emperor that they were ready to sacrifice their lives and their homes for him. He then walked slowly around the chamber, asking each one of them to forgive him if ever he had caused offence. They followed his example, embracing one another as men do who expect to die. The day was nearly over. Already crowds were moving towards the great church of the Holy Wisdom, Hagia Sophia. For the past five months, no pious Byzantine had stepped through its portals to hear the sacred liturgy defiled by Latins and by renegades. But on that evening, the bitterness was ended. Barely a citizen, except for the soldiers on the walls, stayed away from this desperate service of intercession. Priests who held union with Rome to be a mortal sin now came to the altar to serve with their Roman brothers. The cardinal was there, and beside him bishops who would never acknowledge his authority, and all the people came to make confession and take communion, not caring whether it be Orthodox Byzantine or Catholic Christian who administered it. There were Italians and Catalans along with the Byzantines. The golden mosaic, studded with the images of Christ and his saints and the emperors and empresses of Byzantium, glimmered in the light of a thousand lamps and candles, and beneath them, for the last time, the priests in their splendid vestments moved in the solemn rhythm of the liturgy. At this moment, there was union in the Church of Constantinople. When the Emperor's council was dismissed, the ministers and commanders rode through the city to join in the worship. After confessing and taking communion, each then went on to his station, resolved to conquer or to die. When Justiniani and his Byzantine and Italian comrades came to their allotted places and passed through the inner wall to the outer wall and the stockade, orders were given for the gates of the inner wall to be closed behind them that there might be no retreat. Later in the evening, the Byzantine emperor himself rode on his Arab horse to the great cathedral and made his peace with God. Then he returned through the dark streets to his palace at Blackenai and summoned his household. Of them, as he had done of his ministers, he asked forgiveness for any unkindness that he might have shown them, and he bade them goodbye. It was close on midnight when he mounted his horse again and rode, accompanied by the faithful Francis, down the length of the land walls to see that everything was in order and that the gates through the inner wall were closed. On their way back to Blackenai, the emperor dismounted near the Caligarian gate and took Francis with him up a tower at the outmost angle of the Blackenai wall, from which they could peer out into the darkness both ways, across to the Mesotychian on the left and down to the golden horn on the right. Below them they could hear noises as the enemy brought up their guns over the filled-in foss. This activity had been going on since sunset, so the watchman told them. In the distance they could see flickering lights as the Turkish ships moved across the Golden Horn. Francis waited with his master for an hour or so, then Constantine dismissed him, and they never met again. The final battle was about to begin. And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, as usual, I'd be delighted if you wanted to subscribe, to recommend it to a friend, or best of all, to leave a review. Thank you so much. And in the next episode, we'll hear about the final attack on Constantinople. See you then. Mm-hmm.